Second Corinthians chapter 5. If you want translation, there is the code for you with the Microsoft Translator app. You can enter that in and you'll see everything in your own language. And uh, I suppose if you're practicing, you can go from English to whatever language you'd like to practice in as well. Uh, but certainly if you need help, then we can get that for you. Just about anybody around you can help. Well, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read first this scripture and then spend some time in it together this, this, this morning. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And here we read, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. I pray he adds his blessing to it. And the title of the message is Christ's Love. It changes Everything, And so let's start there by taking a look at what our motive is. If you're somebody who's a follower of Christ, Paul is saying there is a central motive driving all of your understanding about this life. And he says in verse 14 that it's Christ's love for us. Love compels us. Love urges us on. Love controls us. And we know, we see this in the movies, whether you watch Bollywood or Hollywood, you'll see love as a central theme that drives a lot of behavior. Uh, no pun intended, I had a friend who drove 10 hours every single weekend for about a year to go and to meet with his potential spouse. So he'd work, very long work week, Friday he'd drive 10 hours, Sunday he'd return for a year. Why? Love, right? I mean, that, that controls our actions. And, and you know what this is like. We see this everywhere. Uh, perhaps you've experienced it for yourself. We are captivated by love as a driving motive. Now, there are different degrees of love. 
Some of you may have heard of somebody named Taylor Swift. And somehow the NFL, as we know, is consumed, less and less so, I think, by God's mercy, with the relationship between her and a certain uh, person on the Kansas City Chiefs as well. So we're here to watch football, but we see Taylor excited for a reception or a touchdown catch. And people known as Swifties love this experience, and people known as NFL fans despise it more and more. But we all understand the reason it's being shown is because it's kind of a picture of love. Now, how deep that love goes is only going to be proven over time. And it may not be a love that's really going to last, we don't know. The love that we're talking about here, though, is a different kind of love, or at least it was proven. Because this is what the Bible talks of as agape love, self-sacrificing love for somebody else who really doesn't deserve it. So we're captivated by love. We know it controls us. And in the beginning stages, it shapes all of our behavior. But as time goes on and those emotions are gone and things get hard, will that love continue to pursue no matter what? And this is the kind of love that Paul was so taken by, the love he saw displayed in Christ, that he was able to pursue others. Even those like these Corinthian people who he laid his life down for, even just in loving them. And they sat there and they were kind of making him a target. Some of the people in the church had put Paul's face up in their rooms and were just taking aim at it like this with darts. And he was able to absorb that. And he was saying, you shouldn't be doing that for a lot of reasons, but I can still pursue you because I've been captivated by the love of God expressed in Christ. That's a divine, agape, self-sacrificing sort of love that Paul knows each one of us has to experience. Or when life comes along and we rely on our own, it could be as fleeting as the next little love interest that might come up next year in the NFL or somewhere else. The gospel, though, says Paul, it's like that love that we picture and we all want to see, but even better. This is what Paul's been saying. If you've been here with us, he's been consumed with the glory of God. And if you remember, God's glory is the real deal. It's substantive. It pursues no matter what. It's, it's, you see a picture of love, but his is the real thing. That's, what, that's what's glorious about it. We have this idea, but... In Christ, he's expressed it fully and completely. And that explains Paul and his view of the difference that Christ makes in a believer's life, the love expressed in the sacrifice of God. This is what this passage is all about. When he talks about Christ's love compelling us, what does that love look like? He laid down his life for you. This isn't the only place the Bible talks about it. You may be familiar with some of these passages. I mean, this is the famous one. Let's stay in the NFL Theme. I feel like I see this less behind field goal things than I used to, but most NFL games, you'll see John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God said, I love the world even though the world is rejecting me. And the evidence of that is the gift, the giving of a son. And this son, it wasn't just, a, it was a gift that was rejected and ultimately led to death. 
Later, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples in the Gospel of John, says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He's talking to his disciples there. The demonstration of his love is, is laying down his life. It's interesting that he says for his friends because we see in other parts of the scripture that somebody might die for a good person, but what about sinners? What about somebody who's rejected you? And so Paul points out God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not like we cleaned our act up and then finally got okay and then he said, okay, you're in. Come on in. Now you finally arrived. Now you're lovable. He said, no, well, you were still sinners. Messy, lost, hostile, petty. Christ died for you. That is the pure expression of love. And that love, Paul says, is, is so beautiful, so life-changing, that it now controls everything about him. It compels him to do certain things. And one of the things we see here in verse 15, and by the way, props to Eric when he preaches. He does the same thing. He highlights and puts in, in you know, the, the, the highlighter, yellow highlighter, what he's focusing on. And I found that very effective. I don't know why I've never done it before. Uh, maybe I'll continue, but thank you, Eric, for uh, teaching me in, in that respect. But to draw out what this is all about, we know Christ's love compels us in verse 14. And that what's the result? He died for all that those who live, okay, fine, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, this, this kind of love that's been expressed, does it make a difference? All the difference in the world, at least for Paul. If you really understand that love then, and embrace it, then your life is controlled now by it. That's, that's what, why you are living. That ex, it, it colors the way you look at absolutely everything. So if, for example, church for you is just something that's Sunday morning and then you forget about it, you've not really understood what the gospel's all about. Because this love expressed in Christ is now the controlling way that you are moving forward in life. All of life is thinking about what does that look like to receive and express this love that's been offered in the person of Christ. Now for me, when I was 16, 17, and and first really heard the gospel and, and really took it in, this, this was completely life-changing because I, I saw now that everything I'm doing, I want to be for him. And it's not like the stuff of this earth no longer matters. We see that it does. We've been talking about that. In fact, the gospel tells us this matters even more than you possibly imagined before. But you can't imagine or understand how, how important this is without knowing the bigger picture, the glory that's been revealed. Christ came in the flesh. We live in a physical world. But there's more than just that. This doesn't mean that this mat life matters less. It means this life matters more. And the view of that is just before this because he starts looking at eternal things. For me then, and, and maybe you could tell a similar story, when I first really understood that I said, I can't live life the same way. I can't think the same way about school, about relationships, about the future. 
And there was all kinds of excitement and freedom that came in that reality. The weight, maybe, of me having to make a name for myself or me feeling like I have to measure up, gone, because Christ has accepted me while I was still a sinner. That's transformative. And Paul wants everybody to know that. He's committed to to making sure as many people hear and understand and see it lived out in space and time. And so one of the other practical realities, he says, is that we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Nice highlighted stuff there going on again, too. What does that mean? We once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. And Paul, in other places, makes it clear that the measure of a person is not found in their accomplishments, in their intelligence, in their status, but as somebody made in God's image. You, each of you, you were created and crafted by the God who spoke the world into existence. And you have an eternal soul that was designed to worship him. And he's given you a purpose right now to live out. And if you're missing that, then, then you're missing out on the central aspects of why you've been created. And Paul is saying, when I look at you, that's what I ought to be seeing. It's almost like we're putting on a set of glasses that looks at somebody. And, and you know, you're taking in, we, all, we look different, different we, we do different things. But, but underneath that all, we're created in God's image. And when I look at you, I should be seeing an eternal soul for whom God has laid down his life. So I don't regard you just as I see you. You're more than that as well. And that framework of thinking through things, Paul said, was he used to look at Christ this way, but now he sees more than that. And this seems to be his message because, again, if you look at the immediate context, he's talking about living by faith, not by sight. He's talking about not what is just seen, but what is unseen and what's not just temporary, but eternal. And you're going to have a resurrected body. This is just a little tent that you got going on now. And we yearn and groan for what is to come. And so when I see you, if I'm seeing you in this way, I see more than just what's in front of me or I ought to. This is how Paul looks at people as eternal souls made in the image of God. Each soul matters. And it also means that we always have the hope of transformation. That's what he says in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So it's a, it's a brand new storyline. You, you are not defined by the past. You're defined by who Christ says you are now. And you're, you're coming in the future. That's a new creation. That's a new start. I am so grateful for new starts. Every single time at the end of a calendar year, yes, you start writing checks and you put last year's date in it too. But isn't it nice to have a new start oftentimes? And God gives those to us naturally. We have a calendar, but every single day, aren't there days when you're just glad that you can go to bed and wake up and start again? Or fresh or new? And he gives us that. And as I've said before, sometimes it's not just a new day, but a new part of the day, or a new hour, a new minute, a new second. God's always giving us new starts, and he says what the gospel does is give you a completely new start. You are a new creation. The old 
is gone. And one of the challenges for us, I think, is when, when other things in life, it could be Satan himself, the, the great enemy of the soul, or just your own memories coming together, and it says you were condemned. No, Christ's love was once for all. Isn't that what he said here? He died once for all. You have to anchor yourself in the reality. If you have trusted Christ and he is yours and you are his, you are not guilty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. And when those memories come back, you take it to the cross. And you say, that does not define who I am. There was a man named... Brownlow North, who lived in Scotland back in the 1800s. I'll read this portion here from a commentary. North had lived a reckless and godless life until he was converted around 45 years of age. But his conversion was genuine and thorough. And not long after he was converted, he was given opportunities to preach the gospel. Before he was about to speak in a church one evening, someone rushed up to bring him a letter, urging him to read it before he preached. North opened the letter and found that it was a description of many of his former sins and failures. The letter concluded with these words, How dare you, being conscious of the truth of all the above, pray and speak to the people this evening when you are such a vile sinner? Boy, I'm glad I didn't get any letters like that before this morning. I mean, that's tough. In this accusation, we hear Satan's diabolical voice always condemning. North heard it too. When he got up into the pulpit to speak, he pulled out the letter and read the contents to the people. And then he added, All that is said here is true. And it is a correct picture of the degraded sinner that I once was. And oh, how wonderful must be the grace, must the grace be that could quicken and raise me up from such a death in trespasses and sins and make me what I appear before you tonight, a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning blood of the Lamb of God. It is of his redeeming love that I now tell you and to entreat any here who are not yet reconciled to God to come this night in faith to Jesus that he may take their sins away and heal them. His response wasn't, wasn't to say, nah, that's not true, or to minimize it. He said, all that is true. And because it's true, I stand here as a, a, a testimony of God's grace and mercy that he can forgive anything. And you too, maybe you're the one who needs that forgiveness. You must be reconciled to God. That's the appeal of the gospel. And in fact, that's what he spends the rest of his time talking about. He says, what does this love compel us to do? Well, live for him, regard no one from a worldly perspective. That is, anybody can change, anybody can be transformed. Look at me, I'm a new creation. And finally, we're called to engage in the ministry of reconciliation as God's ambassadors. That's a lot happening there. One of the things he mentions in these next verses repeatedly is this word reconciliation. And you can see, again, the Eric highlight that is going on there. Reconciled five times. He talks about reconciliation. What is reconciliation? People who were enemies now 
peace. Those who were once hostile now in friendship, in closeness. Those who were, who were, who were at war now, they're okay. And it's more than that. It's, it's, not just, it's not just skin deep. It goes much deeper than that too. And this is the ministry that Paul says he's been entrusted with. And by extension, I, I, I would argue we all have as well if we're in Christ we have this ministry given to us of reconciliation. We're viewed as God's ambassadors. If you are an ambassador, you're a representative of something bigger than you. And Paul says he's a representative, and so are you, of this gospel that he's been discussing. So we think of ourselves as ambassadors appealing to others on behalf of the true king for us. Be reconciled first with God. This is primary. And the Bible makes it clear that we're all enemies of God from the beginning. We've inherited the guilt and corruption of sin. And we're not naturally honoring God. But because of Christ and what he did, we can enter into a new relationship with God. And we're no longer enemies, but we're at peace with him. That's the starting point. It has to begin there. Because if you try to exercise a ministry of what you might call reconciliation with that, that, it's just good works again. It's just a new project. This comes out of the love that God has shown you. So we have to embrace that first and foremost. No wonder if we're not resting and abiding in that, we lose energy and strength. Why would you continue loving somebody who's hurtful toward you? It's impossible to do. Unless... What you've received, you can give to others. It's hard to give away what you yourself have, haven't received. And the good news of the gospel, right there in verse 21, is that God has demonstrated the beauty of this substitution, or even a really fancy term called imputation. Right. So that's just the idea that here I am, a sinner. Christ is perfectly righteous. He obeyed everything God asked him to do. I have not. You stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of it, so we're all guilty. But Christ, who is completely perfect, he's without sin. And what happens on the cross when he dies is the great swap in terms of an account. Christ takes on our sin and we get his righteousness. It's the, the, the it's a, that doesn't seem very fair. We mostly think of it from our standpoint. But what about Christ? He did nothing wrong. Yet he willingly took on your sin. Uh, each one of you. That's, that's not fair. So the next time you think, that's not fair. <laughs> think about this. This is divine unfairness, it feels like. But he did it. Because that's what love looks like. And that, that's what divine love looks like. Taking on your sin. The, the, most, the greatest exchange ever. And he says now, that's happened. If you've really embraced that, you're called to the same kind of ministry. The ministry of reconciliation, which looks a little bit like that. Taking on something that maybe you shouldn't have to bear. And you can't do it in your own strength. It's impossible. Now that ministry of reconciliation then is to call others first to be reconciled, made right with God. For sure. But it doesn't stop there. Because Paul's writing to a church. And he's saying, you guys 
have to figure out what reconciliation looks like first with God. And then if it stops there, you haven't really understood what that reconciliation first with God looks like. Because it spills over into all of your relationships. It has to. It will. That's how love flows. So we need to remind ourselves not only of what God has done for us in reconciling us to himself through Christ, but also how this spills over into our other relationships as well. You know, Paul was writing and and dealing with the Ephesian church at about the same time. And this is, to me, a very fascinating and really a formative passage, even for ministry for me personally. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul's talking about Christ, and he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing law of hostility. Now the two are Gentile and Jew, two ethnic categories, and there was hostility between them. But in Christ, what he says, that hostility has ceased and no longer exists. If you are in Christ, that dividing wall has been absolutely abolished. Why did he do that? His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. So no longer two, you're just one new man in Christ, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So there's this vertical reality of reconciliation and then horizontal. And you, you can't have one without the other. And you... You, you can't just focus on one without focusing on the other. It's, there's, this, there's this relationship between the two which must work out. And that's supposed to be done in the context of the church. And let's face it, the church hasn't done a very good job of that over, over the years. But there are examples of it, and this is what we pursue. We're reflecting the very heart of God. When the relationships in human terms that shouldn't get along are joined together in a worshiping community. Right now, it's very difficult for us to understand. Maybe you have hostilities in your own nation between you and another people group. That was certainly true in the the Eritrean and Ethiopian conflicts that exist. And right now, as we worship, there is a congregation of Eritrean and Ethiopian brothers and sisters joining hands and worshiping God right downtown at People's Church. And it's kind of hard to understand why that shouldn't be the case. But think of current conflicts anywhere. And the people who seem diametrically opposed to each other actually joining together in worship. What can explain that? How is that even possible? And isn't it amazing when that happens? That's a clear demonstration the gospel is real. It does divide Walls. You have reasons to build up walls and hatred towards somebody. That's something Christ wants to chip away in your heart at and get rid of. Even when they don't reciprocate, when they don't bring it back to you. That's, this is divine love. You see that, don't you? Otherwise, we'll just raise fists or keep spinning our wheels. It has to begin here, but it doesn't stop there. One flows to the other. You can't give what you don't have. Some of you know John Perkins. I just read his most recent book, Mosaic's Cincy Network. Uh, got together and talked about um, his most recent reflections. John, John Perkins has been around for quite a while. 
Uh, I think he's about 90, I think he's 90 years old or so now too, an African-American man from the Deep South who witnessed his brother shot and killed by a white deputy sheriff in, in a, waiting in line for a movie back when he was 16 years old. His parents moved him to California, said we're not going to be, we're going to get you away from all this. And through a chain of events, he came back to Mississippi and had a real love for his people and, be, and began a work, opened up great ministry, but it wasn't well embraced oftentimes by people who were white. In fact, he was beaten and thrown in jail. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just the object of their lack of favor. And he, who had kids too, who had to see him beaten, and then were part of the process of integration and, and were, were called all kinds of things done to them, ached in his heart because most of that injury was done by people who called themselves Christians. So that's a problem, right? And he wrestled with that. So he's written a whole bunch about this. This is his, maybe his last book that he'll ever write. And what's compelling about it for many different reasons is as he's wrestled with forgiveness and, and justice, and he, he is, says at the, that book, he just says, I keep coming back to love. If, if we don't wrap this in love, it's, it's not going to work. Nothing is going to change. And I, I thought about a handful of quotes I could have put up just to kind of demonstrate this point. But here's one he says, for decades, I've tried to meet people where they hurt. I've preached and desired to see justice for all. And I still fervently believe in it. God loves justice and wants his people to seek justice. But I've come to understand that true justice is wrapped up in love. The old-time preacher A.W. Tozer had a way of making the most profound truths simple and palatable. He once said, God is love. And just as God is love, God is justice. That's it. God's love and justice come together in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we can't be about one and not the other. They're inextricably connected. In other words, he says, I've lived a long life. I've been hurt. And he's finally come to a point, and it just didn't happen like a snap, where he could look at somebody who was white with a police uniform on and say, I forgive you. God took a long time for him to get there, but he did. And God worked on him over time. And at the end of his life, I listened to voices like this. As I say, what, what do we do? How do we engage in this work? And he says, if it's not wrapped up in love, it's just raised fists. And that love sometimes is sacrificial. It hurts. Especially the people who should be closest to you. Maybe the ones who wound you the most. It just doesn't make sense. Where do you go with that? You could end up embittered and hostile and angry. And that's understandable. But isn't that all the stuff that Christ took on for us? Shouldn't he be embittered, angry, and hostile? Why is he suffering for you? And John Perkins says, if I don't go back there, I'll be undone. I have to go back again and again and again. Christ's love compels us to love others in the same radical way. And Paul said in verse 11, he tries to persuade men of this gospel reality. And again, here he closes in verse 20. He says, we implore men to be reconciled to God. And the phrase I wrote about in the little write-up before this message was, this is something that must be lived out and shared with. Or you could say shared, shared with and lived out. We share it with others. But the sharing is the living out at times. 
It's a both and. You, you have to, and we're doing this together. We're figuring this out. He's writing this in the context of a local group of believers thousands of years ago, but here we are again now in Mason, Ohio, a local group of believers trying to figure out how do we live this out and share this in our context with others as well. They're both needed. And I know some of you have been called to share this kind of love in acts of kindness, even towards enemies. I know you have. I've heard some of those stories. And I'm humbled by them. Because my knee-jerk reaction to when I've been hurt is not as kind as it ought to be always. So God's got work, redemptive work, that he's still working inside of me. Maybe we'll all be tested at some point in this. This is a love that takes sacrifice. It can't be done in our own strength. But it's a love we have a chance to show the world and each other. The purpose of Christ's love is to create a community that follows in his steps. And so if you remember, one of my, my spiritual mentors who passed away last year used to talk all the time that if you're going to pray anything, pray for your children, pray that they would understand God's love. And that just feels like, doesn't it sound like a nice thing? It sounds great. And, but it, I think that's a, a fair estimation. We, we can't just leave that love out there. It takes on flesh and blood, even in the way that I respond in, in, in all of life. And the good news of the gospel is that when I get this wrong, which I will, I don't have to be led toward condemnation. I take it back to the cross and say, okay, God, show me your love again because I have not shown it very well. To my spouse, which by the way, you're supposed to be husbands laying down your life for your wife in the same way that Christ did for the church. Boy, that's sacrificial love. That's upside down type of love. And we're supposed to be doing that with each other. Love God, love others. That's the entire message boiled down. But you can't do it in your own strength. And so perhaps, in closing, you can pray a, a, a prayer that Paul himself, remember in Ephesians 2, he says, here's this great picture of the dividing wall being broken down. And by the way, in Ephesians 4, he starts talking about the practical difficulties of that, about what it looks like. But before that, in Ephesians 3, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. The only reason, if you're right with God, is because you were rooted and established in love. That the reconciling love of Christ. But I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And Paul is praying that for a group of people who have already said they're, they're Christians. He understands We've got a long, there's a huge learning curve here to understanding the love of God. Not just conceptually, but in life. Not just sharing it with others, but living it out. Have power to grasp the full dimensions of the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You can't put it on a piece of paper. It's bigger than that. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Well, there's a practical takeaway, if there's anything else at all, is just pray that prayer. And usually, when you pray prayers like that, that you'll have the power, God provides opportunities for you to begin to understand what that love can look like in the most practical sort of ways. This is, the Bible is so practical. So this love isn't just out there like some 
you know, some, some song that a, an artist just wrote that sells billions of records. It's you in your life. Remembering what God has done for you and then letting that love flow to others as well. You'll be tested on this. But you have to go back to the cross again and again and say, thank you for your love. Because if you measured me based on the love I have for others, it would fail. But that's not your measure. It's the love that you have, God the Father to God the Son, empowered by the Spirit to walk this out. Father, I do pray for our own hearts this morning as we think about how love changes everything. I mean, some of us understand what that's like on a human level. Maybe some of us long for it. We've never experienced it. But we saw last week that those longings only point to something that we deeply yearn for, a love that accepts us for where we are, not just who we're going to be. Some of us have that, and we rejoice in it and say thank you for it, especially during a time of thanksgiving, but we understand it's just a shadow of what's really true that we've been given a glimpse of in the person of Christ. So if we feel removed from that love today, may we, may we embrace it. Show us what that means. Or if we feel the, the opportunity maybe to grow in it too, would you... Would you give us power to grasp the full dimensions of your love so that we can simply be vessels of mercy expressing it to others? Do what you will, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.